As we, uh, as we transition to, uh, to our time in the Word, let's, uh, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for, for this evening, for this day, to, to be able to gather together on, on the Lord's Day and, and to, to fix our attention uh, a few times uh, on, on your Word, on what, on what you have to say to, earlier today. In, uh, in 1 Samuel 17 and, and also Genesis 4, uh, really, really important texts uh, for, the, for the history of, of your people and, uh, and how they are applied, uh, how we can apply those, the principles that are found there to our lives. Thank you for, uh, for bringing those things to our attention through the men that you've used in that respect. And, and I pray in this time that, that I would just be a servant, um, another servant in, in, in serving the word uh, to, to us in Mission Road. Uh, pray that the word of God is, is front and center in this time and, and that uh, the clarity and accuracy and faithfulness would, would rule the day and, and that, uh, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll turn, uh, turn your Bibles to, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, that's where we're going to, to begin our time this evening, Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm really grateful for how the, the providence and of God and, and, and really his timing has, uh, has brought this, this week about, at least in my life, uh, how this particular week has come together. One of my seminary classes is, this semester is Old Testament survey. And, uh, and so part of that is we've got to read through the Old Testament a couple times uh, throughout the semester and we do it at our own pace. And, and this, uh, uh, this weekend, actually yesterday, I began to read Deuteronomy again and, and, and came across this passage in chapter four. It begins in, in verse 25. So chapter 4, verse 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I, that's, that's Moses, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve God's, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him in, if you search for him with all your heart and with, and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. But there's many elements in, in, those passage, in that passage that we could focus on, but, but I, wanna, I want us to consider that Israel there is on the verge of, of entering the land. And even at that point, even, even as, as he's giving them one final exhortation on, to, be, to be faithful to the covenant, that he's, Moses still says, you're going to fall away. 
you're going to turn from the Lord. You're not going to worship God alone. And when they do that, when they turn from God, God's going to drive them out. He's going to send them away. Exile is going to be their future condition. But Moses says, even at that point, God will remember Israel, even in exile. He says, he says, God's going to be faithful to you. You're going to come back. You're going to return. God's going to be faithful to you. He's, he's going to show you compassion in your distress. Now, what's interesting is that, that Israel hasn't seen the compassion of God to its fullest extent yet. That's ultimately going to happen when the Lord Jesus returns to establish his millennial kingdom. However, the text that we're going to be in, Ezekiel 11, God's compassion and his faithfulness to Israel in her distress is on full display. That's what we're going to consider for, uh, for this evening. But, but note here, just, just, setting, just setting the tone, that from the very beginning, God promises his faithfulness to his people even in their darkest hour. And for, for Israel, the situation couldn't get any darker than when she found herself under the judgment of God and expelled from the land. It can't get any darker than that. This, this was the ultimate tragedy, to have their covenant God send them into exile, into the lands of the unclean Gentiles. It couldn't get any worse. But it's in exile that God remembers them and shows his faithfulness toward them. And so in God's providence, life sometimes seems like it's, there's an endless series of of disappointment, of discouragement, of distress, and, and then even, even tragedy. I mean, you think about from, the national, uh, from a national viewpoint, 9-11, that was a national uh, tragedy. There's been a wave of school shootings over the years. I still remember 1996, Columbine High School, uh, where, where I grew up. That was a national tragedy, even though it happened in my backyard. There's also worldwide tragedies, genocidal and, and ethnic massacres that, that in some sense really define the 20th century. But more often where we experience tragedies are, uh, are on a personal scale. We, we experience the affliction of a loved one, a, a death in the family, betrayal by a friend, loss of a job, distress of a, of a wayward child. How should we respond to those things? How, how should we respond to, to tragedy like like that. What, what perspective should we have in the midst of distressing circumstances? I want our time in, in Ezekiel 11, as, as we're really kind of peeking over the shoulders of, of Israel here, I want our time to, to help us cultivate what, what a Christ-pleasing, God-honoring response will be to, to tragedy, will, will be to those distresses that we encounter. So go ahead and turn to, to Ezekiel chapter 11. And, and I tell you what, Ezekiel 11, well, Ezekiel as a whole, is really, it's, it's a fascinating book. If, if you've got a couple months free, which none of us do, but, but if you have a couple months free on your calendar of, uh, of just reading, 
Spend, spend those months in Ezekiel. It's really, it's really fascinating. And have somebody, uh, you know, somebody like Dr. Block walk you through it um, with, with his commentaries. But um, Ezekiel 11, it, it comes at the, at the end of, a, of the prophet's second vision. Chapters 1 through 8 are really kind of uh, the first vision that Ezekiel has, that, that, that God shows Ezekiel. Um, and the second vision starts in chapter 8. And, and just for some context, Ezekiel's uh, by the river Kibar, which is in the ba- Babylonian Empire. And, and, and the year of this vision, the second vision, is around 592 B.C. So, so he's still about six years uh, prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, where Nebuchadnezzar just comes in and raises it to the ground. And, and the vision... This vision begins in chapter 8, and the primary message that God's giving Ezekiel is that, that he's abandoning the temple, and he's going to destroy the city. That's the primary message of, of these four chapters in 8 through 11. The question is, why? Why would he abandon the temple? Why would he destroy the city? Well, because the temple of the one and only God is now a house of idolatry. It's full of idolatry. Chapter 8 is, is clear. Everywhere Ezekiel looks, all he sees is idolatry. So God's response to that in the vision is that he's going to slaughter the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, he's going to remove his presence. He's going to remove his glory from the temple. And, and just to give you an idea of how, how unthinkable that is, how tragic that is, God's glory departing the temple would be like, like the Holy Spirit no longer indwelling his people today, no longer indwelling you and I. And that, that's, that's the significance of it. I mean, that, that's, that's how big of a deal this is. But that's not all that God has to show Ezekiel in this vision. Uh, as if to back up and, and really kind of show Ezekiel more of the evil that's going on in the city, God takes him to the east gate of the temple. And there, Ezekiel sees really the wicked plans and the wicked counsel of the leaders of Jerusalem. And what they're telling the people, uh, they're, they're basically saying that the city's not going to fall. The people aren't in danger. Don't, don't, don't worry yourself with Jeremiah. He was a contemporary of Ezekiel. Don't worry yourself with what he was saying. Don't, we're going to be okay. We're going to be fine. But God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against them and to say that, that the city is going to fall. The people are going to be slaughtered, all because of their refusal to obey God and his commandments. And really, at that point, that, that is too much for Ezekiel to take. I mean, you, you can just, you can see throughout, uh, throughout these four chapters how, how Ezekiel just gets whittled down. To, where, to, where, to this point where he just can't take anymore. So in the middle of verse 13 in chapter 11, he, he falls on his face and he cries out, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? This objection is, is really what kicks off our passage that we'll focus on in verse 14. In, in the following verses, God clarifies for Ezekiel exactly what he's doing. In other words, it's not those who are still in Jerusalem who are the remnant, whom God is protecting. It's the exiles. It's 
It's the exiles. And so in response, this is what God says in verse 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take out the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. So the first two verses, they really serve as, as something of an introduction uh, to the passage. In verse 15, God's describing the, the Jerusalemites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what, what they're saying, that the sweeping statement uh, that they have to say about everybody in exile. So from, from Ezekiel to his immediate family to, to all those outside of the borders of, of the promised land. If you're outside of the land, this is what we have to say about you, that you are the ones who, who are under God's judgment. Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Now, now, it's helpful to consider the, the opposite of, of what they could be saying. Just, they're, they're not saying this in grief. They're not saying, these exiles, our, our brothers, our kinsmen, they're far from us. No, they're, rather than interpreting those taken in exile as, as, a, as a judgment against them all, against the whole nation, they interpreted their remaining in the land as evidence of, of divine favor being upon them, as evidence of them being faithful. And therefore, it was, it was evidence that God had completely rejected these exiles. They were out of the picture. So furthermore, the, the Jerusalemites, they were saying that, uh, that God had no re regard for the exiles because this land has been given us as a possession. So, so in other words, what they were saying was that their loss is our gain. What they left behind, we get to pick up. We get to take. It's all ours. God's rejected them, so their property, their inheritance, it's all ours. And we can do with it as we please. So they believed, in essence, that they were the sole recipients of, of the promises that God made to the patriarchs. Why did they believe that? Because they were still in the land. The exiles were out. They were gone. You can't, you can't inherit something that you're not around to inherit, inherit, according to them. God judged them by taking them out of the land. And, and so that meant that, that the exiles, they no, long, no longer had any claim 
to, to the land. They no longer had any claim to what, was, what God sat, actually said was theirs. And so therefore, if, if they've been rejected, if the exiles have been rejected, then, then those who are still in the land are the remnant. They're the true people of God. They're the faithful ones. And guess what? According to verse 13, Ezekiel and the exiles, they all believe that too. Everybody was on the same page. Those who remained in the land, they were God's people. They were the ones whom God favored. And, that, and that's, why, that's why Ezekiel's totally horrified by what he sees by the time you get to, to, to chapter 11, verse 13. By, by God slaughtering the Jerusalemites in this vision, he's destroying his people. He's dis- utterly destroying his remnant. And that's the misunderstanding that God's correcting, beginning in, in verse 16. He's correcting both the arrogance of the Jerusalemites and the despair of Ezekiel. And in doing so, God highlights his own undergirding faithfulness to his people. So in this passage, in, in verses uh, 14 to 21, God himself, this is, this is God himself pointing to two rock-solid evidences of his faithfulness to his people. And it so happens it ha- it, that it's in tragic circumstances. So these are two evidences of his, pe- of his faithfulness to his people in tragic circumstances. And the first evidence of God's faithfulness is found in verse 16. It's his presence. His presence. In other words, God is with these exiles. Verse 16 again. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. In responding this way, God, God's refuting the, the Jerusalemites' claim. He, 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 he does take ownership of it. He, he does say, yeah, I'm the one who sent them out. The, the Jerusalemites said that the exile's removal from the land was evidence that, that God had turned his back on them. Their, their assumption was that God's favor was bound up in being present in the land where God's presence was. And, and why not, really? Why not? Being in the land was, was part of being the people of God. That's what, that's what their identity was wrapped up in. And, and everything in the, in the law seemed to, to point to that. So if we haven't been removed from the land, then God must still approve of us. But, but what God says here really contradicts that false assumption. In other words, exile's not an indication of divine neglect. He says, even though I removed the exiles from the land, scattering them among the, the surrounding places, yet I was a sanctuary. For them. I was a sanctuary for them. What does that mean? It, it, means that, it means God is present with them while they're in exile, while they're outside of the land. God's faithfulness is manifested to them even though he sent them away, even though he's judged them. It's manifested in, in Himself, he himself being their sanctuary. And, and that right there, he calls himself a sanctuary for them. That is unprecedented. You look throughout the Old Testament and, and you, see, uh, you see everywhere where sanctuary is talked about, everywhere the, where the temple of God is talked about, the presence of God is talked about, it's all bound up in, in, a, in a location. This is, one of the, this is about the only place that I could find that God himself is the sanctuary. 
God himself is the location uh, uh, of, of, of the temple. And, th- and that's astounding news. That is unbelievable. Why? Because up until this time, it was all about the tabernacle. It was all about the temple. That was where uh, the sanctuary where God could be found. So, so it was really natural to assume uh, that God couldn't be found outside of the temple, outside of the land. It was really natural to assume that. But here God says he was a sanctuary for the exiles. In other words, God promises to be for the exiles what the temple was for them in Jerusalem. They're going to have a relationship with God apart from the temple. Think about it. As those so accustomed to the tradition of the temple being the proof of God's presence, this this promise is really unbelievable. But God says that that he has been with them even while they've been in exile, even while they've been sent away. And so here's the significance. The exile is not evidence of God's rejection. Instead, God's promise to them while they're in exile is evidence of his intention to preserve them. That's how he's preserving his people is by, is by putting them into exile. So God directly refutes the, and undermines the, the claims of the Jerusalemites to exclusive access to God. And in, in so doing, he, he affirms and establishes his commitment to the exiles. So take a moment and and listen to what God's saying here. God gives Ezekiel a glimpse into Revelation that we have in full. I mean, did any of that sound familiar? That that the location of worshiping God is not found in a building? That's what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4. Listen. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, that's the false place of worship in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Ultimately, he's pointing to himself. Jesus himself is the location of worship. That's where we worship, in Christ. And how that happens, uh, in part, is actually through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in believers both corporately and individually. And and, and by the authority of God's word, this means that we are God's temple because of who resides in us. So so when you're in the muck and and mire of of life and and it seems that that all hope is is really just, it's gone. You, you You can't see in front of your face because of how desperate the situation is. Remember God's faithful presence in your life. Remember that. He is with you. He is with you. He has promised you to, to, to continue to be with you and never leave you, never forsake you. Remember that. It's so hard to get, have that perspective when, when, when you've got this circumstance, when you've got this situation right in front of you. It's so hard to have that perspective. But he's with you. And in part, that's why we, we need each other. That's why we need these one another's to give us that kind of perspective. Say, brother, the Lord's with you. I, I know it's, it's hard, but the Lord is with you. Remember that. Trust, on, trust in him. Cling to him. Cling to this assurance that, that he's with you. 
Not only does God say his current presence with the exiles is, is evidence of his, of his faithfulness, but also evidence of God's faithfulness is found in his promises. It's found in his promises. Now remember, God is refuting the claims of, of exclusivity that the Jerusalemites uh, hold to. And in verses 17 to 21, he, he, does, uh, he does this, he, God refutes this, uh, by promising to work on the exile's behalf in the future. And these promises are threefold. First, there's the promise of a new exodus and a new land. So, uh, let's read verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Now, can you, can you hear the, the echoes of the exodus there? God told Moses he's going to take them out of Egypt and he's going to give them the land of, of Canaan. And what God tells Ezekiel is similar. The only difference is, is that instead of God promising to gather the, the Israelites in one place and bring them out like he did uh, with Israel while they were in Egypt, God promises to gather them from, from many places to the places where he's been scattered, and he's going to lead them back to the land. And this promise is, is, is part of the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, that the land would be an everlasting inheritance for their descendants. So these exiles, they may have been cast out of the land according to God's judgment, but, but he's going to bring them back in. He's promising to bring them back in. And, and notice that this is just a, a direct and flat-out uh, contradiction to, to the claims of those in, in Jerusalem in, in verse 15. They said, the land's been given us. God's given us the land. And God says, no, I'm going to give the land to those exiles. And, it, and it's the same word. It's the very same word that's used. I will give you the land of Israel. The Jerusalemites say in verse 15, the land's been given us. Note also that God's, God's faithfulness to his people, to true Israel, his, his remnant, will be on full display when he undoes the scattering in verse 16. There's this scattering, I, I sent them out. That was me, I did that. But in verse 17, he gathers them and he assembles them and he brings them back. When they come there, when that, when that generation comes there that I'm gonna give the land, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. So the exiles who return to the land, they have work to do. They got to get rid of all of this stuff, that's all, all, of these, all of these abominations, all of these detestable things, all, all of this that, that's really collecting dust in Israel. But unlike what, what Joshua and his generation had to do, which was, which was clean the land of, of the idolatry that was going on because of the, at the hands of the, of the Canaanites, this future generation is cleaning up the idolatry of their own people. They're cleaning up the idolatry of the Israelites. And that's exactly what Moses said would happen. When you do this, when you, when you start worshiping false idols, and just think about that for a moment. The idolatry that was in Israel. 
That is utter self-deception on the part of those who are in the land. Why? For, for centuries, king after king had led the people into idolatry. And, and after all that, after all of that, these Jerusalemites, whom God was about to reject, they, they clung to their unfounded notion that, that God favored them just because they were still in the land, just because they weren't the ones who were exiled. That is just blatant hard-heartedness, to walk through the streets of Jerusalem and see idol after idol after idol, almost like, almost like Paul saw in, in Athens. And for the Jerusalemites to just say, God doesn't have any beef with us, it's just, it's just hard-heartedness. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable that, 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 they wouldn't, that they would think that God wouldn't hold them accountable for what they were doing. But don't we need to think about how easy it is for us to turn? Uh, don't, we need to, don't we need to be watchful for that same kind of tendency? I mean, just, just think about how little time it takes for apostasy, apostasy to come into fruition. And tonight, we're, we're here at MRBC. Who's to say, humanly speaking, Who's to say that in 10 years you're not going to be one of those who, who wants your ears tickled and, and believe false teaching? Who's to say that? Scripture's promises that for those who, who, who don't neglect cultivating a, a sincere faith and a good conscience will be those who persevere, will be those who continue to cling to Christ in the, in the manner that he says they should, who will believe the truth and practice the truth. If you don't do that, if, if you don't do, do that kind of work of, of cultivating that kind of life, you will fall away. That will happen. That's a, that's a real danger. We've got to do this kind of work, this kind of work of devoted faithfulness to God that, that's according to his word. And, and as we're doing that, we're entrusting ourselves and relying on him for his enabling grace to, to do what he says we, we ought to do, what we need to do. Keep your grip firm on his promises and keep your eyes fixed on him, just as these exiles were to do, just as these exiles will do when God gives them the land back. So God promises a new exodus and a, and a new land. Secondly, God promises a, a new covenant for a renewed people in verses 19 and 20. Look at that. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. So just as hearing the echoes of the Exodus in the last, in the last verse, can you hear the echoes of the, of the new covenant there? What we just heard is, is really similar to those, really, the, those, those, when we think about the new covenant in the, in the Old Testament, we think about uh, Jeremiah 24, 31, 32, later on, in, uh, and then later on in Ezekiel also, Ezekiel chapter 18 and Ezekiel chapter 36. 
But, but just think about reading this for the first time and, and hearing, hearing about what God is going to do that's new. He's, he's going to do something new. He's going to give me something else than what I already have. And the, and the end of that is that we will be his people and I will be their God. It's just astounding. This promise is just amazing, especially in this context. Are you going to utterly destroy the remnant? No. I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can obey me. So God, God promises to give these returning exiles one heart and a new spirit. This is, this is language of, of, of whole person transformation. This is work that God's going to do. God's going to take out this fossilized heart of stone and, and, uh, and give them the sensitive heart of flesh. In other words, they have a heart problem. And it requires surgery to fix it. In Jeremiah 32, 39, I will give them one heart, one way that they may fear me always for the purpose of that they may, they may fear me always. Their, their problem was that, that their heart of stone feared idols. They feared things that they made instead of fearing the living God. I mean, that, that was their biggest problem. Ezekiel 14.3, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. The idolatry was within them. They needed a complete heart transformation. And that's why God promises to give them one heart. It, it, it's not just this, this new heart. It's, it's a heart that's singularly devoted to following the one true God and nobody else. Being singularly devoted to God. And God, God promises to provide that. He promises to do this surgery. Three times God uses this word give, where he's the active agent in, in the promise. If, if you know someone named Nathan, that's the word he uses, Nathan in Hebrew. I will give. I will give. I will give. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. That's the, that's the same word. I will put. I will give them a heart of flesh. God's going to do this work. And so why, why is such a radical transformation necessary? Verse, verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. That's the, that's the real crux of the issue. And, and it was the issue from the beginning. They couldn't obey. Israel could not obey. That's the purpose for which God gives them one heart and a new spirit and a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone so that they would obey. So, they, so that they would be faithful to the covenant. And when this happens, this is just, if, if you know anything about the promises to, to the patriarchs, this, this should be ringing, ringing in your ears. This should be lights flashing. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. And that's the, the climax. That's the climax of God's promises to these exiles. They, they believed that they were cursed by God, because of the exile. But, but now God tells them that, that he's going to bring them back to the land, he's going to give them a heart to obey, and then they will be his people. It's, it's, it's just amazing, God's, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's patience. 
ultimately, these, these promises are going to find their fulfillment in some future generation of Israel. And, and here, here's just amazing news to think about. That generation may be living today, which means Jesus is coming back soon. That's amazing to think about. It, it may not look like it now, but, but history is running headlong, running, is going to run smack dab in, into the day when the Lord Jesus returns and he sets up his millennial kingdom. It's coming. It's coming. And it's going to be at that time that Israel finally embraces her Messiah and these promises are going to be fulfilled. And then they'll, they'll know fully that God's faithfulness is found in the very promises that, that he says he will fulfill, that God's faithful to his promises. Yet with these promises also come this other promise. It's a promise of an old judgment for an old problem. Look at verse 21. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring, down, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. So despite the promise of receiving this singularity of heart and a new spirit, the, the warning remains the same. If, if anyone does not have this heart, which God promises, but, but instead goes after the abominations that lured previous generations of Israelites, God promises to judge them. He promises to judge them. God has already said that this, this promise of judgment, this judgment is going to fall on the Jerusalemites who assume that they had God's favor. But that future generation who, who receives the fulfillment of these promises must not take God's faithfulness for granted either. They will not escape condemnation if they don't flee their idolatry. God's justice will be brought down on them if they presume upon his, his favor. And, and this term, I will bring down, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, that's the fifth time that God's used that word. I will give, Nathan. That's the fifth time in this passage that, that he's used this, this word. So what we should note about this is that just as God promises to give the, the land, to give a new heart, to give a new spirit, he also promises to give judgment. He will judge those who disobey. I mean, that's a promise to judge disobedience and idolatry. Now, remember, we're, we're considering God's faithfulness to his promises. So how is this promise of judgment evidence for God's faithfulness? It's a question we should ask. This promise of judgment is evidence of God's faithfulness because it's, it's through the warnings of judgment that God preserves his people. We, we should ask, okay, if, if this is going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom uh, and, and all Israel is going to be saved, won't they have this new heart? Won't they have this heart of flesh that, that replaces the heart of stone? Wouldn't that mean that they will obey? Why insert this promise of judgment? How can a heart that's devoted to God turn from God? We should ask that question. I think it's precisely through the promise of judgment that God preserves his people. The warning of judgment is a means of preservation. What do I mean? It's like the warning label on a bottle of poison. 
Has anybody really been tempted to drink a bottle of poison? You know, one of those bottles that has the skull and the crossbones? It looks inviting to, to taste. No, not at all. But, the, but there's a warning label on it. Don't drink this or you're going to die. Don't drink it or you're going to die. If you heed the warning, if you don't drink it, you won't die from drinking the poison. It's similar to this. Don't worship idols or God will judge you. God will condemn you. Don't do it. That's what I think is going on here. It's the warning of judgment that preserves God's people to faithfulness. We see, it's the same thing that's going on with those warnings in, in uh, warning passages in Hebrews. The warning is a means of preservation. But all of this means that, that the people who receive the blessings of, of God's faithfulness have the responsibility to obey him. We have the responsibility to obey God. Just because the exiles heard this promise of God's faithfulness doesn't mitigate their responsibility to repent of their sin and to pursue holiness. And that's the case for us today. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received the promise of eternal life. And with that promise, we have the responsibility to put off sin, to put off wickedness, to put off evil deeds and put on righteousness and put on holiness. Not, not only is that our responsibility, but God actually requires it. He says, be holy just as I am holy. But here, here's, the, here's the glorious news. Here, here, here's the best news of all. We have that requirement laid over us, but what God requires from us, he's, he's also provided for us the ability to accomplish that, to do that, to actually pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to put off sin. Think about it. We are living in the days of the new covenant. What, what this passage points toward, we are living in, in the days of partial fulfillment. Jesus actually did institute the new covenant. To, to sit here on this side of the cross and read this and say, I know what that's about. I see that every time I take communion. I remember that every time I take communion. We, we see this right before our eyes. Because God's counted Jesus' righteousness as ours so that we are justified by faith in his sight, he's given us his spirit in order that, that we are now able to obey him more and more as we walk according to his word. We have, at least in part, the fulfillment of these promises, and we're Gentiles. There's a greater fulfillment coming for Israel. But we have this. And he's been faithful to this promise to be with us forever, and he's going to continue to be faithful. And ultimately, God's faithfulness is our only hope when we encounter tragedy. I mean, the background of all of this has been exile, has been utter tragedy and distress for the people of Israel. Their only hope, our only hope, in the midst of those times is, is God's faithfulness to his promises, that, that God is who he says he is. Where else can we turn to? Who else are you going to turn to? 
in, in those times when they come. We have nobody else that we can turn to. And here's the beautiful thing. The one that we can turn to, the one that we are to turn to, is the one who is utterly, utterly faithful to do what he says he will do. The exiles, they were living the tragedy. They were in the midst of the curses and the punishments that, that we began the night with in Deuteronomy 4. They were in the midst of those that, that God warred, warned would, would come for disobedience. But God promised his faithfulness to them even in tragic circumstances. And, and if God was faithful to them in that situation, in such a national tragedy as that, I think it's, it's pretty simple to understand that that God will be faithful to us when we encounter those things. In our, in our personal lives, in our families, in our church, God's going to be faithful in those, tragic, in, in those tragic circumstances, in tragedy, in distress. And, and that's, what, that's what we need to take away from this tonight. God's faithful. God was faithful to Israel. God will be faithful to Israel God is faithful to us. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. And trust yourself to him, rely upon him, depend upon him, and remember when those dark days come, he's faithful. If you're in those days right now, he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, help us to, to entrust ourselves to you in, in every circumstance. We sang about it earlier that, that we have these, these lighthearted moments and it's easy to, to trust you and to say that you're good. But what do we do when, when those days turn dark? Help us to entrust ourselves to you in, in those days. Help us to, to remember your faithfulness and, and your steadfast love, to know exactly who you are, to, to even be, be able to read something that's, that's specifically for the people of Israel and, and, and gain, from it, uh, gain from it the knowledge that, that you're faithful. You are utterly and completely faithful to what you say. Help us to cling to your promises. Help us to, to cling to your promises of that, that we find throughout the scripture to the promise of, of your presence that you're always with us. Help us to remember that, to seek you always and in everything be, be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do these things. We need, your, we need your grace to do all of these and so much more. Praise us in Jesus' name, amen.